is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, Russia's aggression growing in Ukraine. Troops seizing an important part, uh, port city in the southern part of Ukraine. This comes, by the way, as Russian troops in other parts of the country continue shelling cities with the hopes of soon taking over the capital, Kiev. The United Nations General Assembly voting to demand that Russia stop its offensive in Ukraine. Peace talks could resume tomorrow between the two sides in Belarus and the Biden administration announcing plans for a new task force to target Russian oligarchs who have helped finance this invasion. We will go in depth into the war in Ukraine. The president announcing a new plan for the pandemic. will let people take some of the treatment pills immediately after testing positive. We'll talk about how that's going to work. Did you notice the faces at the State of the Union? Mask-free, at least mostly. There were a few people wearing the masks. So we'll look into whether this is a signal that lawmakers and the administration, they're ready to move on from COVID. Fitbit recalling a couple million of the watches because the batteries may burn people. We'll talk about that. And then Dodger Stadium will be empty a little while longer. The baseball lockout um, opening day delay uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. But uh, we begin in Ukraine. CBS reporter Phil Itner is in the western portion of the country near the border with Poland. Phil, thanks for being with us. Uh, we're now learning uh, more, I guess, about uh, the casualties that are mounting on both uh, fronts, the Russian front and certainly the Ukrainian one. And uh, for the first time, I believe the Russians are now in control of a city that I think is about southeast, if I'm not mistaken, of where you are? Yeah, that would be the city of Kherson. Um, we had been getting reports all day uh, from that city. I've been coming to this country for about 25 years, and I have a pretty extensive network of friends and colleagues and contacts throughout the country, one of whom forwarded to me a request from inside Kherson, uh, civilians asking for there to be a corridor open so that they could escape. I think that was our first indication that things were getting very, very bad in Kherson, and it does indeed look as though the city has fallen, and this would be the first major city that the Russians have taken control of, if indeed it does turn out to be a fact. And is that kind of the sense that's going around that, look, and we were talking about uh, baseball just a second ago, um, this is like the first or second inning still of this. I mean, the Russians are going to oh, yeah. come through and they're going to surround these big cities. And then where you are is probably where a bunch of people are going to flee because that's furthest out and that's the quote unquote safest right now. Yeah, that's correct. Now, uh, I, I am in a city called Lviv. It is uh, about an hour's drive to the Polish border. So we're very, very close to Europe here. And as such, many of the people in this city do lean towards closer ties with Europe and moving away from Moscow. It makes this place a very uh, sympathetic area should uh, the government or the military have to fall back uh, if uh, Kiev should fall or be taken. Uh, the the mood here in this city, while we are pretty far away from the fighting, is getting increasingly tense. We are getting uh, several times a day uh, air uh, siren uh, testing uh, over which a loudspeaker is saying this is just a test. Uh, this is what you should do if, if you hear this in earnest. Find the nearest shelter, you know, go to ground, that sort of thing. We don't anticipate any kind of... Um, offensive, uh, armored offensive, uh, to reach us uh, anytime soon, which is another reason why this is a good place to fall back to. There's an awful lot of ground between where the Russians are and where we are here. Um, we'll see the tanks coming. So 
um, the soldiers and the tanks we're not so worried about here, people uh, here, myself included, as I'm here. Uh, but we do have concerns, uh, and the air raid siren testing is, a, is proof of it, that perhaps we might see airstrikes or missile strikes here in Lviv. It is a prime target uh, for the Russians because it is the stronghold for the anti uh, Kremlin forces within Ukraine. You know, uh, I need not uh, tell you, of course, that in the first few days of this, uh, there was uh, uh, at least proclaimed optimism uh, on the part of the Ukrainian government and the people there as well, uh, that in the end they will emerge victorious over the Russians. But the situation, I mean, I'm sitting here thousands of miles away, and you're certainly much closer to the to it, but it, it doesn't seem as if that optimism is that well-grounded, does it? Well, it's a difficult question to answer, frankly, because the sheer might and size of the Russian army, it was only a matter of time between before at least some of the momentum would shift in their favor. Um, the, the as far as we know, they still do not have air supremacy, so that's that's uh, of, of note. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's just so many uh, battalions and, and forces uh, arrayed by the uh, Russians uh, coming into Ukrainian soil that I think everybody did understand that there were going to be losses. But as far as what the Ukrainians are saying and their optimism that they've displayed, well, firstly, they have put on a heck of a fight. Uh, there's just no discounting that. We've seen defections. We've seen surrenders by Russian soldiers. Um, the, the, the morale on the Ukrainian side remains high. They're, they accept that they're going to take hits, but they say, no matter what, we will not stop fighting. I can't tell you, gentlemen, how much I have heard from nearly every Ukrainian I know or meet here in Lviv that say they will never stop fighting, that they have tasted independence for eight years now, since uh, the Maidan Revolution in 2014, and if you really want to push it back, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. But really, it's these last eight years where they've kind of taken into their own uh, identity. Uh, and the solidarity is, I've never, I've been coming here 25 years, I've never seen it like this. CBS reporter Phil Itner in Lviv, Ukraine. Phil, thanks. Russian attacks getting stronger in Ukraine. This comes as a delegation from Ukraine's government on the way to Belarus for talks with Russia. Felix Light is back with us. He's the CBS News reporter in Moscow. Uh, Felix, when we talked to you uh, just a couple of days ago, we were talking about protests and, and they were getting bigger and then there were a lot of arrests. I, I presume are the protests in Moscow, in Russia, still ongoing? I mean, to be honest, like it's still continuing at a fairly sort of... Uh stable pace you know certainly like it has tapered off to some extent but people still are coming out people still are protesting and that you know kind of in and of itself is not unimpressive you know this is a country where the penalties for protesting are just huge you know and the fact that people are still doing it does state i think that there is a lot of uh, dissension over this decision to invade ukraine you know we are seeing sort of 500 people a day sort of arrested for protesting that's not nothing in a country like russia i think is it a makeup of mostly young people or is it everybody? I mean, people get their news from different sources if they can get the news at all over there, is our understanding at least. Yeah, certainly. You know, I think the, the, the kind of the protest demographic kind of skews a bit younger, a bit more educated, a bit more urban. You know, it's it's what sort of would be in, in any other country, a sort of a liberal, more left-wing sort of demographic, you know. But on the other hand, you know, we have a few sort of 
kind of high-profile cases of things like sort of survivors of the siege of Leningrad in the in the Second World War, sort of protesting. So there is, I think, you know, uh, a, a sort of an anger that cuts across a lot of different demographics, a lot of different age groups here. I'm curious, what happens, if you know, to these people who are arrested? Are they picked up and then let go 24 hours later? Is it sort of a nuisance arrest? Or are there real uh, repercussions? Oh, well, there can be huge repercussions to sort of doing this stuff. You know, uh, you know, most people are sort of let, uh, released and let out. But, you know, the process of arrest in Russia can be exceptionally violent. Uh, you know, you also have to sort of reckon with consequences like losing your job. Uh, you can be kicked out of university. And also sort of once you get, I think, three sort of uh, these are essentially like sort of uh, misdemeanor arrests. Right. It becomes a sort of a, a criminal act, a felony, and you begin to get sort of serious sort of legal consequences. Uh, so, you know, most sort of veteran protesters have sort of multiple convictions and that sort of acts as, some, as a bit of a, a restraining factor because people are much get much more scared when they're you know being required to pay something like, you know, ten thousand dollars fine and things like that. Has anyone at any higher level of government said anything about this that that is not Putin's line? Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've had some sort of uh, rumblings of discontent from the the Duma, which is Russia's parliament, which is extraordinary because the Duma is very tightly controlled and basically quite Kremlin loyal. You know, we've had a few sort of uh, lawmakers from the sort of the nominal sort of controlled opposition parties speaking out. We've had a few sort of figures from the political establishment speaking out, including some people uh, who were very, very, very instrumental sort of 20 or 25 years ago in promoting the, the young Vladimir Putin uh, to high office speaking out. It's accompanied by oligarchs. So some sort of major business sort of figures have been quite opposed to the, uh, the declaration of war in Ukraine. What's happening with money now? Uh, are people still lined up? Uh, blocks long to get uh, non-existent uh, cash from the ATMs? Are, are they finding uh, food in the supermarket beyond their, their ability to pay, that sort of thing? Well, I think sort of the, the, the flurry of sort of uh, withdrawals at ATMs sort of tapered off. But what I think has uh, surged recently is a sort of uh, a move for people to simply get out of Russia. A lot of people are leaving the country now. You know, uh, everything that we hear sort of at the airports is that Flights to sort of nearby countries that are accepting Russians, you know, places like Turkey, places like Armenia, places like the United Arab Emirates are really full right now. So we're seeing quite an active sort of brain drain. And that's that's uh, sort of come along with various other sort of negative economic consequences. You know, Russia before this crisis was already facing sort of really serious hyperinflation. And I think it's likely to face quite a lot more in the future. So, uh, you know, these sort of these these pressures, you know, sort of eroding wages, a brain drain, you know, uh, foreign currency issues. You know, the 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 the, um, the Russian stock exchange is going to be closed for its fourth day running for tomorrow. So, you know, an extraordinary kind of almost a belief that if they don't face the music, it's not real, you know. But this country is in serious economic straits right now. And I don't think anyone would deny that. The but, but Felix, where are these people who are leaving Stock exchange, as you've just pointed out, closed for the fourth day. Uh, the value of, of the uh, ruble is, what, 40 or so percent lower than it was. Uh-huh. Where, where are they getting the, the money to go to another country? That takes a lot of cash, a lot of reserves anyway. Well, yeah, and people, you know, spend that whatever savings they have. They might take out some 
you know, they might take out a loan. You know, these people who are leaving, I think, they represent sort of the wealthier segment of society, you know, the sort of the, the, the well-educated, urbanite, probably a bit younger population. You know, people who work in industries like IT, who have a little bit of money to sort of uh, spend on, on, on an emergency relocation. Uh, so, you know, there are people... It's not the it's not who are doing this. It's not the bulk of the population. You know, the bulk of the Russian population is and and, and, and remains very very poor, and uh, the the resources to do something like this are, are sort of beyond their means. But there is a lot of worry and a lot of people voting with their feet right now. Felix Light, CBS News in Moscow. A little bit later on, a big but kind of silent message from the State of the Union address. It could be a sign that the Biden administration is ready to move past the pandemic and. Opening day at Dodger Stadium will be delayed if it happens at all this season. We'll take a look into the Major League Baseball lockout. Right now, the Russian oligarchs could get hit hard. The Biden administration announcing this new task force will enforce U.S. and allied sanctions imposed on Russian officials and the oligarchs that have helped finance the war in Ukraine. How much muscle is this uh, task force going to have? Attorney and former federal prosecutor in the Eastern District of Virginia, Gene Rossi, with us. Gene, thanks for coming back. So here's what uh, people are probably asking as they're driving around in the car. Um, we've seen the reports of um, some of the giant yachts you know, steaming towards places where there aren't extradition treaties with the U.S. If we could, can we literally take the boats away? Well, I want to let you know I don't have a yacht. And all these yachts <laughs> remind me of the phrase, uh, rats leaving a sinking ship. <laughs> well, what I see uh, happening now is that the oligarchs, who allegedly have a symbiotic relationship with Putin, because that's how he maintains power, by making sure the wealthy people in Russia uh, are in his pocket. Uh, they now realize, the oligarchs, that um, their uh, financial empires and their uh, liberty may be at jeopardy because they are intertwined with Putin. So, what is the goal of this uh, USDOJ klepto capture task force? It's very simple. There are many, several oligarchs, uh, one's worth as much as $25 billion, according to Forbes or financial magazines, they're going to go after the Department of Justice and European entities that are similar to it are going to start looking at the symbiotic relationship between these oligarchs and Vice President Putin. And think of, um, think of commingling. If Putin has given them funds to launder money or to set up offshore accounts, <clears throat> or corporations and uh, in, in, in fake names. If Putin is involved in that process, that is classic money laundering for which the federal laws would apply. And given that uh, Putin has violated several international treaties already with his invasion of Ukraine, there's ample reason and probable cause to establish grand juries. And I understand from reading the articles that you just sent me that one of the lead prosecutors or the lead prosecutor for this task force is from the Southern District of New York. And under him, he'll probably have 15, 20, maybe 30 main DOJ prosecutors and prosecutors from U.S. attorneys out in the field on details. That, that prosecutor, she or he, will have an army of, of skilled litigators that are going to issue a, a boatload of subpoenas to banks to law firms, to corporations, to find out what assets are being held by these oligarchs in the United States 
and what connection, if any, there is to Putin and any Putin-run enterprises. Okay, so everything, Gene, that you've just ticked off, and you know this all too well, takes a lot of time. A lot lot of time. (laughs) So none of this, it may have some long-term repercussions, right? But none of this is going to to do a, a single thing. Well, I disagree with you. Okay. I want to I want to correct you on this. Okay, go ahead. Just just remember that, you know, if you if you have criminal charges, obviously the burden of proof is beyond a reasonable doubt. But there are many avenues for the Department of Justice to seek civil forfeiture actions where the burden of proof is only a preponderance, 51%. So there may be avenues when they can they can file very soon civil actions under the uh, civil forfeiture laws of the United States. But, what, but, what's your, but what's your definition of soon? Uh, within weeks, months, they could get injunctions, protective orders. Yes, it depends how aggressive they're going to be. It's not going to happen in a week. Now, here's the other option they have. There are current laws that give some authority for the Department of Justice, the Treasury Department, to take immediate action if they have a basis to freeze certain assets and then litigate it later. Now, that's something they can take right away. I agree with you. A grand jury investigation, a criminal investigation, that takes a lot of, um, a lot of work because these uh, alleged uh, kleptomaniacs, if you will, kleptocracy uh, uh, members, they are very clever. So it does take time to unwind or solve the Rubik's Cube of financial crimes. But I, I do have solace. One of the agencies that are involved in this task force, and I, I, did, I did 12 years of tax cases for DOJ, Department of Justice, Civil and Criminal. They are going to have uh, several criminal investigation division agents, special agents, the Elliot Nesses of the world that will help these prosecutors. And they are they are fantastic agents that can move fast and aggressively in solving those Rubik cubes. Yeah. All right. Attorney and former federal prosecutor, uh, Gene Rossi. Gene, thanks for coming back. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. COVID plan announced by President Biden at the State of the Union meant to make it easier for people who test positive for the virus to get the antiviral treatments, calling it test to treat. So you get tested at a pharmacy and uh, you turn up positive. And then what do they do? They hand you the antiviral pills on the spot at no cost. That's how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. The president says... <laughs> you don't sound <laughs> yeah, particularly mm-hmm. sure. Uh, well, we'll find out. The president says these treatments will become available sooner than expected. <laughs> okay. Dr. Michael Hogue is dean of the School of Pharmacy at Loma Linda University. Thanks for being with us. So let's see if I got this right. So you, uh, you're you not feeling well. This is under the president's plan. So you go to the neighborhood pharmacy to get the, uh, the test that they may or may not have. Uh, and if you test positive, you'll get the Pfizer pills, which innumerable physicians have told us on this very program they can't get their hands on. This is going to work? Well, thanks for having me on. Um, Let me kind of clarify what was not necessarily in the details. Um, uh, There are some of the nation's largest pharmacy chains that have uh, worked with the Biden administration to uh, change the way that these oral antivirals are distributed. So currently, 
the oral antivirals from Pfizer and elsewhere go to the state departments of health and then the state determines where those are distributed and they're, they're parsed out over a very large area. What's been proposed is that Pharmacy chains like CVS, Kroger, Walgreens, Walmart, uh, those pharmacy chains would actually receive the drugs directly from the manufacturer and not through the state allocation, which in theory should make those uh, antiviral pills a little more easily available. Here's the catch. Not every one of those chain locations will be able to provide this because the, the plan that's currently being, uh, we're learning more about even just today, is that it will be only in those pharmacies that are co-located with a clinic. So in other words, um, if there is a CVS Minute Clinic or a Kroger Well uh, visit uh, station inside the pharmacy where a nurse practitioner or physician assistant is actually seeing patients uh, alongside uh, the pharmacy there, uh, those are the locations uh, in which uh, you would be able to come into a pharmacy and receive this. So it would not be every corner drugstore, unfortunately. Uh, it would be limited to just those locations. It's about 4,000 sites uh, uh, nationally. And to kind of give you perspective on that, there are 60,000 pharmacies in the United States. So this is about 4,000 pharmacy sites will not probably will improve access, but will certainly not reach every community. So it's going to be like just basically if you had gotten a doctor's appointment anyways or went to the urgent care because you're going to have to see the nurse or somebody there to test and then get your pills that kind of a way. There's no question that you'll still have to have an appointment. Uh, there's no there's no way that uh, these uh, pharmacies will be able to accept walk-up um, uh, requests for testing or for the antivirals. Uh, just given uh, the sheer time it takes to be able to do these things, uh, trying to have crowd control during outbreaks, of course. And, and then as you mentioned at the outset of this segment, uh, uh, the limited quantities of the antivirals that are available, we definitely don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. We want to make sure we have available what's there. But 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 here's a, a potential concern. Uh, I mean, these, as you know, these viral pills, uh, especially the one from, from Pfizer, ones from Pfizer, they're very complicated, as I understand it. They, they have a fairly high uh, side effect profile, depending on other meds that you may or may not be uh, taking. And this process uh, cuts the, if you have a family physician, some people don't, I, I got that. But if you do have a family physician, it cuts your doctor out of the the process, and many doctors, as you know, are still upset that they were pretty much cut out of the vaccination process, partly because of the way the vaccines were, you know, manufactured and they needed certain conditions. But uh, here again, we have a situation where if you do have a doctor, you don't go to your doctor. You now have to go to a pharmacy, find the one that has a, a clinic, go to the clinic, get prescribed these pills from somebody who has probably never met you before, may or may not be familiar with your medical history. I mean, isn't there a better way to do this? Well, you have brought up a great point, and I think it's worth uh, kind of looking into this a little more carefully. We have become such an instant gratification society that we, we expect that everything that we do uh, is going to, every need that we have is going to instantly be met. And, and frankly, uh, it's not a wise thing for us to think that our health care is going to be instantly met. I mean, our, our health 
our well-being. It's our whole person. It's it's what we need to be certain that the, the care we're getting is absolutely the best. I do have a high degree of confidence in pharmacists in specific locations who have res- who have relationships with the people that they take care of who know their health and well-being, that those pharmacists could do a great job at managing this drug therapy, just as their physician can do a great job at at, uh, managing the drug therapy. What concerns me is what you just stated, is that, uh, you know, when, when we try to put everything through a standardized process and we don't allow for individuals to seek medical care from the sources where they uh, want to seek it from, that, that creates a problem. And so we do need to make sure. Here's my message to everyone who's listening to this program. Um, you need to know you need to have a personal physician. First of all, that's bottom line. If you don't have a personal physician, get one. Number two, if you don't personally know your pharmacist, go to the pharmacy, introduce yourself and make sure they know who you are and tell them that you want to make sure that the medicines you're getting are the ones that work best with your other medications. And that's essential because if you have to have Paxlovid, uh, the Pfizer product, you you want to make sure that that you do that there's somebody paying attention to the dosing to make sure your your kidney function is what it needs to be to make sure you don't have serious drug interactions uh, pharmacists are well equipped and trained to do that but you need to have the confidence that the person you're working with knows you and has that relationship Dr. Michael Hogue Dean of the School of Pharmacy Loma Linda University So President Biden, uh, last night at the State of the Union, he acknowledged that Americans are tired, frustrated, exhausted with the pandemic. But uh, did you notice something in looking at the pictures of all those, what, 400 some odd people? It was like normal times. It was like normal times. There were a few people wearing masks, but hardly any. Yeah. And then especially noticeable during the after, you know, like handshake and smile and selfie thing, everyone's super close together, which, you know, we haven't seen. Yeah. It was like strange. But here's the thing, right? Despite the mandates dropping all all across the country and uh, maybe soon here in L.A. County by uh, what Friday, a new poll shows a majority of Americans actually support some restrictions still going forward. They don't think the pandemic is over. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner with us, professor of population and public health science is Keck School of Medicine of uh, USC. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So uh, I think we've all before talked about this. This is really going to turn into a personal preference kind of thing. And that one-way masking is going to work for most people if that uh, mask that they've got on is is a good one. Right. And I think, you know, people um, are concerned about what they saw, you know, on on television with the unmasked, you know, uh, political leaders. But the reality is it's no longer 2020. So in March 2022, we're in a very different place. We're in a place where we have surveillance, which means we have ongoing monitoring of where infections are occurring. We have testing. So we have more testing available than ever, ever before. We have vaccination. We have, you know, more than two thirds in some places, 75% of the population vaccinated among people over 65 you know, 90% of people over 65 are vaccinated, which means they might not be protected from infection, but they're protected against serious disease and hospitalization. And we have treatment. So um, we have medications that if you get it early, those medications will prevent you from going to the hospital. So do you think 
then that uh, the message and 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 I will submit uh, to you that I, that nothing in Washington happens by accident. Even dumb things don't happen quite by accident. Everything is pretty much planned. So it was deliberate on the part of these political leaders to make a statement of their own and collectively at that uh, by not wearing masks. Do you think, though, that that was a good message to give to the American people? Yes, I think it was a message that was important to show that we are in a different place now in the uh, in the epidemic, that we have a variety of tools in place. We have tools that can prevent serious disease, and we've shifted our strategy away from doing everything possible to prevent the spread of infection, which included you know, lockdowns, capacity limits, uh, school closures, mass mandates. And now we've shifted to a place where we're going to prevent people from serious disease and dying because we have the tools. So we're in a different place. So and a different place requires different tools. And, you know, I was very encouraged by uh, when Biden mentioned this test and treat model and putting the medications uh, in the pharmacy so that people didn't necessarily have to go to a doctor to get a prescription. As soon as they tested positive, they can go to designated pharmacies and immediately pick up the treatment. So how do we ease people into this who are still, you know, I've not eaten in a restaurant or I don't go to the movies or I wear my mask everywhere? Or is this just a matter of time for, you know, because you've got obviously a whole spectrum. You've got the Super Bowl and then you've got people who still don't eat indoors. And is it kind of just still to each their own? But you know what? If we go through a couple more months, there may not even be the options to get the outside all the time, whether you want it or not. Well, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, with time, people will, you know, feel more comfortable, they'll have less direct experience of, you know, uh, friends and family getting sick or going to the hospital. I mean, in Los Angeles County, there are still, you know, unfortunately, people dying every day, um, but there are definitely fewer people uh, going to the hospital and our hospitals are not filled up um, as they once were with people with COVID. So as people's real lived experience changes, they'll be more comfortable, you know, going back to quote normal. But again, that normal is never going to be a 2020 situation because that normal now is a place also where 96% of Americans have antibodies to COVID antibodies, either from recovery from infection or due to vaccination. And that means the entire population is at much lower risk for serious disease or hospitalization. But we have created uh, two different distinct worlds, have we not now? I mean, there are more and more stories just about every day, and I'm sure you're aware of that, of people who feel left behind in this emergence from the pandemic, people who are immunocompromised, people who have different ailments or on certain meds, and and they're not building up antibodies because of the vaccination. And so they still feel as if they have to live this cloistered life while they watch the State of the Union and 400 people are hugging and kissing as if nothing has ever happened. Yes, yes. And, uh, you know, people who are severely immunocompromised typically uh, are aware of that because they're under, you know, medical treatment and medical care. So they're severely immunocompromised because they have, you know, a, a condition like cancer that they're being treated for, that they're getting certain medications that suppress their immune system. And we actually have antibodies that um, people can get infusions of antibodies that will protect them from infection for up to six months. 
Um, th those individuals can get medications um, if they do test positive or uh, develop signs of illness to keep in their medicine cabinet. So as an infectious disease doctor, when I'm counseling and taking care of people who are immunocompromised, I educate and I teach them how to protect themselves. And one way is they have the medication they need in their medicine chest. They have home tests available. They recognize their signs and symptoms. And unfortunately, that's the reality of living in an immunocompromised state. Dr. Jeffrey Glauser there, Keck School of Medicine, USC. Doctor, thank you as always. You're listening to KNX In Depth. Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Fitbits are for burning calories, um, but if you have one, might actually burn you. Fitness tracker company recalling almost 2 million of them. Lithium-ion batteries, they say they can overheat, then it'll burn your wrist. Uh, dozens of reports of this happening, including a handful of second- and third-degree burns. Yeah, not good, and this isn't the first time. We've seen major issues with these lithium-ion batteries, which are in everything, from laptops to TVs and phones, even electric vehicles. In the last few years, there have been some you know, big fires caused by these batteries in the U.S., in, in the U.K., France, China, you name it. Joining us now, Ian Shear, editor-at-large at CNET. Uh, Ian, thanks for being with us. So, uh, as Mike just said, uh, you know, this is something that at the moment the news is about the, the watch. But these batteries can be problematic for a host of products that we now find in our everyday lives. Yeah, you may have noticed when you try to get on an airplane these days, they often ask you if you have a lithium-ion battery in your bag, or even if you have a smart bag or something like that, they will ask you how big your laptop is. And all of this is in relation to what is going on here. We're, we're living at a time where we are more aware than ever how pa powerful these batteries can be, and also the impact of the possibility that they could explode, they could have problems. You may remember Samsung, for example, with their Note 7, which was a few years ago now, that was something that was pulled, pulled from store shelves. And in fact, Samsung devices weren't allowed on airplanes for a long time because they were worried about them potentially being dangerous. So yes, this is definitely something that's been going on quite a while. And it's no surprise in some ways to hear about this uh, because these things keep happening. But also a lot of companies have adopted various ways to try and make sure that these batteries are as safe as possible. I forgot all about the Samsung thing, but now I remember it as soon yeah, as you say that? it. But I was thinking yeah. on the way in about the suitcase thing, because I've got one of the bags that, you know, it has the battery, so you can charge your phone out of the bag. But every time I go to check it, they, they remind me, hey, you need to take that out and take it with you. And I assume that that's in case it catches on fire. I've got it with me, and it's not in the bottom of the plane. Is that the idea? Although, what am I going to do if the battery catches on fire? Well, was, wasn't there, <laughs> yeah, but wasn't there also, you know, a few years ago, the 787? I mean, that was the problem. That, they had battery problems on the plane. Yeah, that yeah. was the actual right. plane. That wasn't, that wasn't a computer. Well, and then the cargo the ship full of all the cars, yeah. they think that maybe it was one of the electric cars and the battery that lit the car on fire and then lit all the other cars on fire and then lit the boat on fire. So yeah, and, and look, this is this is the reality of a lot of what we're dealing with, is that this technology, we've kind of hit a lot of the limits of what batteries are able to do. It's actually something we've written about on CNET before, why our batteries all suck. And the reality is that <laughs> we've, we've hit the limits of a lot of what physics is able to do. And we've run out of elements on the periodic table. It's pretty shocking to believe that we can build batteries out of that are able to hold enough energy and be stable and all these other things. And so what we've ended up doing is in some cases we sacrifice the safety for a little more battery life that's what we saw especially with phones they were struggling with that 
but also we're starting to see as we put them into cars or even if we put them into you remember the uh the hoverboards right the hoverboards were not being tested enough so those batteries were just super cheap they were exploding with cars they get in a big accident the battery suddenly splits open of course a ton of energy going everywhere is going to cause an explosion so there are all these different types of things now there are physicists trying to come up with answers to all this but we are years and years away from an actual solution and that doesn't mean it's all dangerous it's just something we have to keep in mind and be mindful of when we're buying these things okay so mindful when we buy them but of course as you know people are going to buy this stuff anyway and so (laughs) Are there things that we need to be mindful of once these items have invaded our homes? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, the big thing to keep in mind is that there are actually operating temperatures you should be living in. So, for example, uh, if you go to any phone maker's website, they will tell you what the ideal operating temperature is. And a lot of us think, well, you know, it's a phone. It should be everywhere. But if you leave it out in the hot, hot sun when you're on the beach in the middle of July, the amount of uh, sun ray coming at it, and and it's a black phone, right? So the amount of energy it's actually sucking up into the phone can make it overheat to degrees that it's very unsafe. So it's a lot of stuff about us actually being very mindful about, okay, make sure I don't leave stuff in places where it could be dangerous. If I'm plugging in my car for the night, right, I've got an electric car, make sure that I'm keeping an eye on it or maybe set it so that it'll stop charging once it's done charged, stuff like that. So you can actually murder your phone. You can't look. I actually uh, back before, you know, cars started getting smart. I used to keep my phone up right on near the console so I could use the Maps app. And, the you know, my luck with an old car, right? The sun was coming right down and it actually caused the phone to turn itself off in a little yellow uh, triangle saying this phone is in danger. It's overheated. <laughs> so, you know, if it didn't have that system, I may have been in a very bad situation that day. Ian Sure, editor-at-large at, large at uh, CNET. Ian, thanks. We, we could kill our phones. Yeah, well, some days. Some days. I mean, I just drop it down the stairs most of the time anyways. <laughs> Baseball's owners, players officially striking out, missing uh, MLB's deadline for a new labor agreement to be in place. That means regular season games have been canceled, and the Dodgers will not be opening the season at Chavez Ravine as scheduled March the 31st. Players called the owner's so-called best and final offer a slap in the face, but the owners, well, they say they negotiated in good faith. So what are these issues? Why are they uh, so far apart? And why did negotiations only start up recently, even though the owners locked the players out months ago? Stephanie Epstein with us, senior writer at Sports Illustrated, who's been following the negotiations. Stephanie, thanks. So do you want to play the uh, who's to blame game here? Because, look, most of the coverage that I'm seeing, most of the commentary does tilt towards saying this is totally on the owners. It's not the players. Yeah, uh, that's that's how I feel. I mean, sure, it takes two sides to negotiate, but it takes two sides to be making reasonable requests. And the uh, the owners really aren't. The players have moved on every issue and the owners have pretty much dug in uh and i think you know we're all losing because they're so obsessed with winning so without getting too uh technical or getting too bogged down in the weeds what exactly is at stake the biggest issue i guess the best way to frame their disagreement is that the revenue has gone up but player salaries have gone down and so the players would like to inject more money into the system the owners would like to redistribute the money that's already there so everybody agrees that young players should get paid more. The question is, does that money come from, is that just new money or does that money come from older players not getting paid as much? 
Is that hard for some people to, to wrap their heads around? I mean, from the outside, even if you're just a casual fan, or maybe if you're a non-fan and you see this going on, you think, okay, so we've got really rich people, the owners, and they're fighting still rich people, the players. So why why do I care about this? You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's a, uh, I think it's a problem with PR for the union. I think they have not uh, done perhaps the 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 best job over the years of explaining to fans that most of these guys actually are not millionaires most of them are on the minimum salary which look you know $575,000 a year yeah, right. is a pretty good deal but most of these guys the average career is like 3.7 years or something so you can't retire off 3 years of minimum salary so where do you see this headed? Because we already have obviously an interruption for the beginning. Uh, is this going to stretch on and on? Or in the end, who's going to come to their senses? That's a great question. And nobody seems to know the answer. Uh, the players sort of feel like they can't back down now because they've taken this stand. Uh, everybody's sort of waiting. The deadline that the players, the d- players believe there's a secondary deadline, which is the point at which owners would stand to lose more than 17 games. They believe that the national TV deals stop paying full rate. Uh, if you give them less than hundred fewer than 145 games, the league has not confirmed that that's the case, but the players think that they have sort of the month of April, that the league is willing to lose. And then beyond that, that the balance of power will shift back to them because then the owners will start losing substantial TV money. And then they, the players believe they'll be incentivized to, to come down on some of their, demands take us through the expanding the playoffs argument because a lot of that comes down to tv money too and then there's the the separate side which is okay uh you want to explain the 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 amount of teams that are in there so you have more games and and the owners want to do that but then also aren't you just ruining baseball by doing that because if everyone gets in then why are we trying so hard to get it should be a special thing and and who's fighting for the game when they're at this table you know what i mean Yeah, I agree. I think when you're a kid, you sort of imagine that the commissioner is like the president of baseball. He's just the guy in the world who loves baseball more than anybody else. That's supposed to be, right? (laughs) Decisions for for the best of the game. And I think most kids who love baseball when they're growing up would like to do that job someday. someday. President of baseball sounds pretty good. But what the commissioner's job actually is, is that he works for the 30 owners. So there isn't really anybody whose job it is to look out for the sport on its own. Everybody either works for the players or works for the owners. And so in this case, yeah, I think pretty clearly uh, adding, expanding the playoffs is a bad idea. I think it dilutes the game. I think 162 game regular season is incompatible with a 14 game playoff because like, why are we doing this for six months? If in the end, it's just, we're going to let half the teams in. It doesn't, I, I don't think it makes any sense. I think it incentivizes teams not to try because if you can get in at 80 wins, why on earth would you try to get to 95? Uh, but it's worth a ton of money. and both sides like money. The players know this is the strongest bargaining chip they have. It's really the only thing they can offer the owners and the owners really want it because that's it's substantial TV money. You know what you said before about the, uh, the average uh, lifespan uh, of the, the player. I, I actually found that, I don't know if many people realize that figure it was three point, what'd you say? 3.7 years? 3.7 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The score has done a good job uh, explaining that. Yeah. yeah, it's been a rough. It, it's it's not. Most of these guys don't have the careers that we imagine when we see like Max Scherzer signed for forty three million dollars a year. Uh, most guys don't have that, and in fact, the vast majority of the union's membership does not make that kind of money. And so that is constantly a 
uh, a challenge when you're organizing players is they have very disparate interests sometimes. I mean, you have the $43 million a year guys, and then you have guys who are hoping to make the league minimum for one year. And that's probably the whole career they'll have. And what do they want to bring that up to if they get what they want? Uh, they would like to see $725,000 in the first year. Number. So, right. so it, does that gulf uh, between the, the you know the the guys that are making the big bucks and the ones who aren't and are only going to be around for maybe you know a little less than four years? That's something that the owners can easily exploit, right? For sure, and they have been, and they've tried over the years. You've seen various tactics, um, like in 2020 when they were trying to restart the season. They uh, they tried to, but they didn't want to pay players for the full slate of games. They suggested taking sort of a graduated tax off their their uh, salaries. So like Mike Trout would get paid less relative to what he was owed than a minimum salary guy uh, in the hope, I think, that that would sort of divide the union that that did not work. Uh, the players, I think, are pretty engaged right now. In the past, they have not always been. It has not been. They have not necessarily seen sort of the value in paying attention to union meetings. They sort of see it as boring. And again, because their average career length is not even four years, a lot of these guys are not going to be around to reap the benefits of whatever they sign. They're not going to be around for the next CBA. But in the last couple of years, they've started to see, wait a second, we feel like we're getting screwed here. There is actually a mechanism to do something about that. And so we'll see once they start losing uh, paychecks. But at the moment, they are pretty unified. Stephanie Epstein. Senior writer, Sports Illustrated, Stephanie, thanks. That's the in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.